What would the most obscure, difficult, challenging, confusing, odd, weird, hard to understand passage of the Bible be for you? What would be the first on that list? Or if you can't think in those terms, especially right off the top of your head, what passages would be on that list? Here's my off-the-hip list. You can look at my notes. They're not there. Here's my off-the-hip list of some of the obscure, difficult, challenging hard and confusing passages. The first is the very second verse of the Bible, that you have the spirit hovering over the darkness. You have, who are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God? This guy Nimrod, who is he? He just shows up and doesn't really do anything. Melchizedek, is he a theophany? Is he a Christophany? Is he a typology merely? First Corinthians, what's this baptism of the dead? We know the Mormons are wrong, but who's right? There's these obscure passages, there's these challenging and difficult passages in the Bible. And I think we're tempted to either have our interpretation of the passage, or they're not obscure because we know what they mean, or at least we have an interpretation of what they mean. That doesn't mean they're not obscure, that means you've interpreted the obscurity. Or we ignore them and hide them. We don't talk about them, we skim through them. In our yearly Bible reading, we just keep reading and press forward. Well, fortunately, as we study our Bibles chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we are not allowed to do that. And tonight, we have a very obscure passage. For me, this would probably be number one or number two of all-time obscurity in the Word of God. But nevertheless, it is the Word of God. And I hope out of the obscurity, we can find diamonds. Because as Spurgeon said, the Word of God is a diamond, and you just need to shine God's light on it, and you can watch it glisten. So with that in mind, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 6 and moving down. First John chapter 5, looking at verse 6 and moving down. Please don't let the obscurity intimidate you. We can find God's truth even in this section. Hear the word of the Lord. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne about his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty clear, right? Everybody understands everything? We can just go home? No. All right, so as I pointed out in the introduction, this is probably one of the most difficult and obscure portions of the Bible, and it's obscure for a slightly different reason than most. Most of the time, passages are obscure in the Bible, not because the language is hard to understand or whatever, it's because the meaning seems to be exactly opposite of what you think or believe is true. You're like, whoa, that can't be right. The plain meaning seems wrong, so then the obscurity is trying to make sense of the plain meaning and how it actually fits in with the rest of the Bible. Another time is when the, the theology of the plain meaning is contrary to the rest of the Bible. Think about the term baptism of the dead. We know we don't baptize dead people. So what is the baptism of the dead, and how do we systematize that into the whole theology of baptism? 
But in this passage, what's unique is that's not the case. It's not like the plain meaning is just so clear and it goes against our sensibilities or our systematic theologies or whatever. It's just confusing. I mean, the plain meaning is hard to even understand. What is this water? What is this blood? The three witnesses? So forth and so on. It's difficult to understand. So the first thing I want to talk about is how the Bible can be obscure. Yeah, did you know that? If you've been reading your Bible, you know that. The Bible actually can be obscure at points, and we should not pretend otherwise. Now, many of you have heard, I'm going to probably stumble over this word, the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a challenging word. No wonder we don't talk about it. Say that five times and see how that works. What the word means, surprisingly, I'm not going to try it again, actually means the clarity or the clearness. So that phrase refers to the clarity or clearness of Scripture. And so we affirm that the Scripture is clear, and yet we just saw a passage that's not so clear. So how do we hold to the clarity, I'll try one more time, perspicuity of Scripture, and at the same time recognize that certain parts of the passage or the Bible are so very difficult? Well, the Westminster Confession wonderfully summarizes this doctrine. Here's what it says in the Westminster Confession. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may obtain unto sufficient understanding of them. Now that's a lot. So let's kind of break that down. Here's what it's saying. Number one, not all scripture is equally clear. Some passages are very easy. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not that difficult, right? God loves the world. He gave his son. Whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. But not all scriptures are equally clear by themselves or to all people. Some scriptures are more clear to others and less clear to other people. And yet, despite this truth, yet the things that are necessary to be known for salvation are so clearly communicated in some part of scripture or the other. This means is that certain scriptures are like, what's going on there? But if you want to know basically how to get saved, there is some scripture somewhere in the Bible that makes that abundantly clear. So much so that by ordinary means, which means opening your Bible and reading, spending some time in God's word, you can understand whether you're learned or unlearned how you are to be saved and how you are to satisfy God. But again, this doctrine does not mean that all scriptures are equal, equally clear, that there are no challenging passages. There are challenging passages, but praise be the Lord that your understanding or lack thereof of these challenging passages do not affect your salvation. God has given the message of salvation with absolute clarity, and yet other things, he sometimes leaves us scratching our head and having to be workmen, rightly for dividing the word of God so that we may not be ashamed. So exactly what the meaning of the scripture is not overly clear, but however you interpret it, it does not change your salvation. If you get this wrong, you're not going to hell. We're not saved by proper Bible Actually, Jesus. We're saved by Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? We all have some wrong theology. Do you know that? There's nobody in this room that has perfect theology, and hopefully your salvation is not dependent on you getting an A plus when you stand before Jesus saying, I knew it all. You don't know it all. We don't know it all. 
We need to be humble people and recognize that. And we need to be willing to let God's word correct us. And guess what? Our tradition doesn't know it all either. Just because you got the right tradition doesn't mean the tradition is perfectly right either. God's word is the standard upon which everything needs to be tested. All right, so that's a basic theology of the clarity of Scripture or the lack thereof of certain passages and certain matters. So let's go ahead and dig into this passage and ask, what does God's word here mean? All right, let's look at it again. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So our passage begins by describing Jesus as who came or who was coming by water and the blood. So in some sense, Jesus has come by water and the blood. And the spirit is also mentioned. And so there's a sacred trinity going on here of some sorts. Okay, There's the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now notice that the passage does not say that Jesus has come by the spirit. It didn't say that. It said he came by water and the blood, and then the spirit he also testifies. So we have one that testifies the spirit, and then we have the water and the blood by which Jesus came upon. But if that was seeming to get some clarity, look at verse 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. So wait a second. I thought there was one that testifies the spirit, and I thought Jesus came by the water and the blood. And then look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men... For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So verse 9 tells us, it adds another little wrinkle, that says that the testimony of the water and the blood and the spirit ultimately is the testimony about God, about his son. Okay, so let's put this all together. Jesus came by the water and the blood, and yet there are three that testify, which is ultimately God's testimony about Jesus and who he is. And that's the water, the blood, and the spirit. Maybe we're getting clarity, or maybe I'm just confusing you. But that's the passage. Okay. So, we got to ask ourselves, what is this Jesus coming by water and the blood? What does that mean? Well, there are three possible interpretations. I shouldn't say that. There are dozens of possible interpretations, but I've kind of shrunk it down to, I think, the most likely interpretations. And you can look at the commentaries for yourself to see that everything under the sun has been suggested about this passage. So here are, I think, the most likely interpretations and the most common ones. At least the first two are. All right, here they are. One, the water and blood refer to the water and blood that poured out of Jesus' side when he died. Okay, so the, the water and the blood that testified to Jesus refer to that water and blood that poured out of Jesus when he was pierced on the cross. Number two, Jesus, this water and blood refer to Jesus' baptism and his death. And number three, this water and blood refer to Jesus' birth slash incarnation and his death. Okay, so let's look at these one at a time. Number one, the water and the blood that poured, that this text refers to, refers to the water and blood that poured out of Jesus' side. I'll be honest with you, when I read this passage, I never came to that conclusion. I never thought, you know, I know that water and blood, that's the water and blood that fell out of Jesus' side. Now, maybe you did, but I personally did not. This is one of those interpretations that came to me, would never actually came to me. I encountered it as I was digging into the commentaries. So that's the first thing. This is not, to me, the plain meaning of the text whatsoever. Now, the second thing we should acknowledge is that, yes, there is, in fact, 
there was, in fact, water and blood that came out of Jesus' body when he was crucified. And that's not an insignificant detail. It's not just some random fun fact that water and blood came out of Jesus' side when he died. Why did John record that, the same author who wrote the epistle of John? Why did he record that water and blood flowed out of Jesus' side when he was on the cross? Well, it's to verify for anyone with any sense of honesty that Jesus died. Because some people today and yesterday wondered if a man rose from the dead after being crucified. Well, there's one way to not rise from the dead, but pretend to rise from the dead is not to be dead in the first place, right? And so people have wondered that. And fortunately, we have this testimony that the water and blood came from him. And we know if there's water and blood coming out of this human being after being stabbed with a spear, the person's dead. Does that make sense? I mean, that's exactly why they were doing it. Why did the Roman soldiers pierce the heart in the first place is to verify he was dead, and they verified that very thing. So again, another point of uh, point for this view is that the author of the Gospel of John is the same author of the Epistle of John. So certainly he knew about this event. Certainly he thought it was important. And so there might be some connection there. Moreover, some have pointed out there might be an apologetic point of why John would point to the water and the blood. Namely, that the people that John was battling with in 1 John are people that deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, this is called docetism, and we don't really deal with this today. We usually deal with people who deny that Jesus came in the Spirit, or namely that Jesus is God. People today deny the deity of Christ, but people on that day denied the humanity of Christ, both from heresies. You cannot divorce Jesus from his humanity or his deity. So these people denied that Jesus really came in the flesh. They said that docetism comes from the Greek word, which means to seem. And so they said that Jesus seemed to come in the flesh, but he didn't actually come in the flesh. And so the reason why John would point here, some have suggested, to the water and the blood is to say, look, the logic is like this. If the water and blood verify that Jesus died, you cannot die unless you're alive. Doesn't that make sense? You cannot be dead unless you are alive. And so since the verification that he died verifies that he is alive, then we can know docetism is not true. Jesus did not simply appear to be alive and appear to die, but he really was alive and he really did die. Now, there's just one little problem with this argument in my mind is if I'm a docetist myself, um, I would just say he appeared to have water and blood come out of his side. So I don't know how like pointing to the water and blood would necessarily prove to a docetist themselves uh, about the incarnation. Okay, the main, the main issue, though, for me about this interpretation is I just don't see any illusion whatsoever in the text about uh, Jesus being pierced on the side. The other problem is if you go into the, the verse, it says that Jesus, look at verse 6 again, part B, he says he does not come by water only, but by water and the blood. And then later on he says there are three that witness, the water, the blood, and the spirit, which seems to separate the water and the blood. It seems to distinguish water and blood as two different witnesses, right? Well, the water and blood all came out at the same time when Jesus was pierced. So why would he be pointing to three witnesses when really it's just two witnesses? And so I think based on this, there's really no reason to uh, entertain this any further. We can put this back in the commentaries because I don't think this view is right. So let's go to the second interpretation, which is that the water and the blood here refer to Jesus' baptism and his death. Now, the first thing is that this is the by far most common interpretation. And, a little anecdotal, when I first read this passage, this is what I thought it meant. Maybe this is what you thought it meant when you first read this passage, too. This seems to be just the most common sense interpretation that water, when referring to Jesus, seems to be referring to his baptism. And then, of course, blood refers to his 
death. In fact, this interpretation is so popular that in some of your more interpretive translations, like the NLT, the Good News translations, they actually insert the word baptism in the Bible. So I'll give you an example. NLT, New Living Translation, says this. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. They actually add the word baptism in there when, of course, it is not there in the Greek. And here's the Good News Translation. It says, Jesus is the one who came with the water of his baptism and the blood of his death. Now, I don't recommend these translations as your main Bible because adding entire clauses that are not there is not recommended. However, they are a wonderful commentary, and they tell you what many evangelical scholars believe a passage means. This is also the way uh, that this passage has been interpreted by tons and tons of Christians throughout the age. It's not novel, new, obscure, rare. This is by far the most unpopular interpretation. In fact, I have a commentary that's a commentary of a commentary, and it tells you what other commentaries say about passages. It's really helpful. And in that commentary, on this passage... The interpretation that this refers to Jesus' baptism and death was cited by 16 modern commentaries. So 16 modern commentaries that you would pull off the shelf all say this, and only one commentary thought that it was the blood from the side of Jesus pouring out on the cross. So that just shows you how overwhelming this interpretation, and why? Well, because it makes a whole lot of sense. The first thing is we see that the water and blood functions as a testimony of Jesus. And so the question is, at Jesus' baptism, did God testify about Jesus? Namely, that he was the Son of God. The answer is yes. Here's that record in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3.16 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this certainly sounds like a whole lot of God testifying and a whole lot about water. Jesus is baptized in the water. The clouds split. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And there is a voice from heaven that declares Jesus the Son of God. Okay? So this fits very well with the idea that the water or the water of a baptism verified by God who Jesus is. We also... Uh, when we think about it, Jesus' baptism is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what's the end of Jesus' ministry? His death. At least his earthly ministry. He began his ministry by baptism, and he ended his ministry through another baptism, namely a baptism of blood. So this hedges off Jesus' ministry really, really well. The beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry. Moreover, there are many parallels about how God testified to who Jesus was, again, at the beginning of his ministry, at the baptism, and at the end of his ministry. So just as God audibly said, this is my son, believe him, at the beginning of his ministry, he did some similar things like that at the end of his ministry at his death. And so if you want to see that, you can turn there. Matthew 27 gives the testimony of how God verified or testified that this really was the son of God at the death of Jesus. This is Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamnia sabachnia. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So once again, we have all kinds of activities by God that are supposed to lead a person to conclude and did lead someone to conclude this really was the Son of God. What are those activities? Well, there was darkness. There was an earthquake. There was a bunch of dead bodies that appear. It's another obscure passage. It's not really obscure. It's pretty plain. People just don't believe it. I don't know why. It says what it says. There's all these bodies that appear. And, uh, and then the, the temple, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And all of this leads this centurion, hopefully anyone else who has ears to hear and eyes to see, that Jesus is the Son of God. So this works really, really well, that the blood and the water refer to God's events at these two events, his death and at his baptism, testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. All right, the last interpretation is that the water and the blood refer to Jesus' birth and incarnation. Now, this is not nearly as popular. In fact, I thought I made it up, but then I actually did find it in the commentary. Someone else actually did hold to this view. It was not my original take of the passage, and I'm so not sure that this is actually the meaning. But here's the basic argument in summary form. If you go over to John chapter 3, which I won't take you there for the sake of time, this is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nick at night, and he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, I don't know what you're talking about. How can a man be born a second time? Can he enter to his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said these words, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's one obviously erroneous interpretation, namely that refers to baptism. Absolutely wrong. Now, the other interpretations that this is an allusion to Ezekiel and the water and spirit are really just saying the same thing, again, dietist. And the interpretation that I often held to, and I kind of waver back and forth, but I think probably this refers to uh, natural birth. Born of water referred to being in a mother's womb, and you, not, you don't need to just be born of water, naturally born, being a Jew, that kind of thing, but you need to be also born of the Spirit. But what's most important is you be born again. But here's the point of bringing uh, you to this passage. It shows that there is a parallel in John of being born of water referred to natural birth, or at least a possible parallel there. And so if this is right, it gives a precedent of thinking that water can, in fact, refer to the natural birthing process. And so, this, again, this is the same Arthur, so maybe he's using it in the same way. Secondly, Back to verse 6 again, it says that Jesus came in the water or through the water or by the water. This is talking about, this very well could refer to the incarnation. How did Jesus come into this world? By natural birth, by entering into Mary's womb. The last thing I'll point to, and we don't have time to go there, but you can look there in your own time. Luke chapter 1, I just want to remind you, we do this every Christmas, about all the things that happen around the birth of Jesus. You know, God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary, they had that conversation. He put the baby in her womb. He, the angel told her that this would be, in fact, the son of God. Then she goes over to Elizabeth. The baby leaps in the womb. And Elizabeth declares, you know, who has given me this great honor that the mother of my Lord would be with me. The point is that God did a whole lot of testifying to who Jesus was at his birth. So those are your three main interpretations. But really, here's the point. The point is, there's a lot of times God has testified to who Jesus is. 
That's why this is so difficult, because he's been constantly testifying who Jesus is at multiple points of his ministry, or multiple points of his life. But there's another one who testifies. So we have God testifying who Jesus was at his birth. God testifying who Jesus was at his baptism. God testifying to who Jesus was at his death. But there's another one who testifies, and that is the Spirit. The Spirit also testifies to who Jesus is. Now, he's done this a couple different ways. One, he empowered Jesus. Jesus constantly, we've been, uh, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and often in John, it talks about, if you don't believe me, believe me based on my works. And you remember when they blasphemed him, saying that his works were done by the power of Satan, he said that the finger of God has done these things, is by the Spirit. And so one way that the Spirit has testified to who Jesus was is by the incarnation itself, by the empowerment of Jesus in the, in the ministry he had, by raising Jesus from the dead, and by sending uh, the Holy Spirit being sent at Pentecost. The last way, and one of a very important way, should I say, that the Spirit testifies to who Jesus is, is that the Spirit is currently alive. And that when we preach the word of God, Jesus promised that he's going to send the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when we preach, we can know that the Spirit is working with us. And that is why when Stephen was preaching uh, to his hostile audience, he said to them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So you know, when you're preaching God's truth, I am convinced right now that as I preach God's truth, his Holy Spirit is right now at work, working with his word to empower it and to strengthen it. And John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Spirit testifies to all that he has done and said. And hopefully we will believe it. All right, real quick here, a few final applications from our text. All right, verse 6b makes this note that Jesus Christ did not only come by water only, but by water and the blood. Now, the question is, why does he emphasize not by water only, but by water and the blood? Well, whether the water refers to baptism or whether it refers to incarnation, the blood certainly refers to his death. And I think here's the point. That what is stumbling for some is the fact that God became a man. I mean, that is stumbling. But what's stumbling for almost all is that that God-man died. That's very difficult. As you look at 1 Corinthians, it says that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jew, and folly to the Greek. This is very challenging. Not only that he became a man, but if he did become a man, he certainly wouldn't die, right? I mean, that's what Muslims kind of say. I mean, they don't even think he would possibly become a man, but die on a cross? There's no way. And yet he did. And you too will suffer just like him. If he was willing to humble himself and become a man, and come by water, and by the blood, you will also have to walk that same bloody path. That's why Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And if you're not willing to pick up your cross... You are not worthy of me. In Acts 14, 22, Paul says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Remember, just as Jesus came, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And let me just say this. I think we get that abstractly. We're like, amen, right? We're going to go through tribulation. And yet, how come when tribulation comes, it always surprises us? We say it intellectually until we feel the pain and, and until we feel the sorrow. But as you feel that sorrow and as you feel that pain, just remember back that Jesus told you these things so that you would not be surprised. And you would remember that cross. And more importantly, you remember the resurrection. Because just as Jesus went through his suffering, so too he rose from the dead. 
And so, too, God will transform your suffering into good. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Last point here. We see this in verse 6c and elsewhere. He says that the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And then he goes on to say, if you believe man, why do you not believe God? You believe man's testimony, why don't you believe in God's testimony? God is the Spirit of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus speaks that which is true, and we find his word in his word, the Bible. And so if the Spirit is truth, and he can only speak truth, then why do we sometimes not believe him? Why do we, even worse, believe the testimony of men over the testimony of God? And what am I talking about? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. Do we believe God's testimony about creation? Are we ashamed of six-day creation? Making all kinds of gymnastics, explanations of how it's not really six days. It's millions of years there. Or what about the fact that the earth is only, or at least humanity, is only 6,000 years old? That's what the Bible says. Are we ashamed of that? Or how about the fact that it says that all human life is made in the image of God, including humans that are unborn? Are we ashamed of that? We cannot simply kill them because they're unborn and unwanted. What about the fact that humanity is male and female, and you can't just choose your gender? Or that the office of pastor is for males only? Do we believe that? Do we accept that? Do we scoff at that? Do we reject God's word? How about this? This is an interesting passage. Psalm 101, verse 3. I set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. I shall not cleave to them. What about God's word about evil entertainment? He says, I set no evil thing before my eyes. And we say, Christian freedom. I can do what I want. Do we believe God's word? Do we hold up God's truth? Or do we listen to the testimony of men? This passage beckons us to listen to the spirit of truth. He's telling you the truth. He's not lying to you. Trust him. You have no reason to believe man over God. Man has always failed you. He'll continue to fail you. God will never fail you. When man contradicts God, I'll take God every day. God knows what happened in his creation, not man. I don't need a scientist. God tells me the truth and let God be true and every man a liar. Most importantly, will you believe God about Jesus? Will you believe God about the path to salvation? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through him? That all you have to do is believe and trust in him and you shall be saved? Do you believe him? Do you believe that? Have you trusted that? Have you accepted that for yourself? And if you have, praise be the Lord. Let me end with this word from Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. The testimony of God rings true. Don't add to his words. Don't contradict them. Remember, every word of God proves true. And as I use this same passage with the women at the homeless shelter yesterday, this passage can be a great comfort to you or a great terror. It can be a great comfort to you if you're on the right side of those promises. You believe, you receive that you have eternal life, that you're going to be with him, and it can be very bad for you if you reject and you cast into that lake of fire where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Believe in him, trust in him, rest in him. He remains true while men continue to lie and be false. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that despite sometimes your word being a little confusing, a little challenging, we can still glean great truths. But I pray that we would all have a fresher vision of how you have testified over and over and over again of who your son is. But I pray that we would listen. We would heed. This is your son. Let us believe him and hear his words. And not just hear them, but to do them. We pray in Jesus' name.